This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. Episode 28 Hjaldri The Battle One. Shal took a second to breathe the fresh air. There was a moment of silence as the soldiers around him finished their food in the great hall of Tonin. The large Kapok and Sharia tree leaves swayed in the gentle coastal wind from the sea to the east. He swallowed the last of his pork and took a sip of mead, relishing his moment in Ahi as he had been trained. The silence was broken by the thundering of hooves on the road that passed under the hill of the great hall. There was no scheduled event, so the sound of many horses rushing into town caused Schalt and several other guards to get to their feet and peer out the arched windows to the bridge. At least eight horsemen following a single Signoyan mail carrier crossed the bridge in a rush as they made for Tone and Keep. Sounds like your dad's about to send us out again. Henny massaged his shield wrist before flexing his forearm. Give us all the juicy details when you get back. Will do. Schalt clapped Henny on the shoulder and jogged out of the great hall onto the cobblestone streets of the city. The drizzling afternoon rain of Sikir met his cheeks as he rushed up the hill between the downtown buildings toward the castle keep. Schalt passed five of the road guards who had stopped to hitch their horses to their posts. He hurried into the cool of the keep, down the central corridor to the main hall where the Signoyan messenger and several other road guards had dropped to one knee before Schalt's father. Igmus, ruler of Tonin, and leader of the mighty Order of Tremli. They're on the march again, three days north, said the Signoyan messenger. The man swallowed and continued. A vast army, a thousand at least. They wore Rizlig colors. They wish to level Signoya and deprive us of our Nascentis orb. As has been the goal of Malice since he took over Rizlig last summer. Igmus stroked his bearded chin, his eyes flicking to Schultz. Schultz stood in the back of the main hall of the keep, listening. Schalt, if we can get a message to your brother Davis and have him meet you and your men there, we should be able to hold off the Riesling assault, Igmus said. Schalt didn't like the odds without Davis. He and his men would arrive at a disadvantage of three to one. The valley terrain in the basin where the Signoyan fort was located gave almost no assistance in guarding the city. Davis is in the middle of a separate campaign. Without them, we'll be slaughtered. Igmus stood up, glaring at Schalt. Am I correct in understanding that you believe each of our men aren't worth ten of Riesling's undertrained forces? Schalt rolled his eyes closed and open before resting his thumbs in his belt above his sheathed sword blade on his left and his dagger on his right. No, I'm just saying, logistically, three to one is a rough prospect. Davis will be there. Igmus sat down. Gather your men and go southeast. Protect Signoya at all costs. Should Riesling acquire both Remel orbs, Malice will be in command of two very powerful artifacts. We cannot allow it to happen. Hurry, Schalt. Schalt bowed to his father, spreading his hands before he turned and jogged back to the great hall where his men were finishing their lunch. He mounted the steps and entered the great hall. Gather your horses and supplies. We ride out for Signoya in the hour. Schalt took a deep breath, looking at his men as they gathered the rest of their food or down the last of their wine. If Davis couldn't meet them, Schalt shook his head to the right and looked away. He had a bad feeling that he couldn't shake. As a leader, when you're tasked with a difficult and possibly life-threatening situation, do you tell your men the full extent of the dangers? 
Do you ask them to hold their wives or girlfriends closely for just one moment with the idea that they may never return? It was a psychological conundrum because men are supposed to be hard. They're supposed to fight like hell and keep going for the cause. But if they know they might lose in advance, they might have already processed a loss. Therefore, as a leader, do you hold your cards close to your chest? It's just another battle. Just another war game to win. Just another day on the job in the life of a soldier. For whatever reason, Schalt decided not to tell his men, not even his best man, Henny, that they were to rely solely upon Davis's arrival for their success. He did not tell them the odds, only the task at hand. Protect Signoia, prevent the theft of the Nascentus Rimmel Orb, and win the fight. That was all that mattered. So Schalt and his 350 men began their journey north to Signoia. 2. Schalt came from the time on Alondronon when names were only one word. The word Schalt is derived from the word in Alondron, Schalt, which means to dig. He was born to Igmus and his mother Raz, 18 years prior. For his entire life, the three states of eastern Shartan had been at war. There were other tribes beyond the desert, past the western wall of Kronos, but none of them could survive the wastes of the Cow Desert preceding their spit of noble civilization. The Order of Trimley upheld their third of the wild country of Shartan, and in doing so they protected the Remel Orb Sikir. There were three of the powerful Remel Orbs. Sikir could control the weather and foresee elements of the future. It's what allowed Tonin to prosper in an otherwise arid coastal desert. The second orb, Nisintis, had the power to control matter. It lay in the city of Signoia in the basin north of the Suezian coast, about 200 miles southeast through the jungle wilderness. The two cities made trade with one another and watched the others back. It was the mountain northerners that were the problem. The hostile and warring city of Rieslig were in possession of the final orb, Ignasis, which could allow the user to control the elements. The three orbs together made the controller invulnerable gave the user vast amounts of unlimited power, and they were nearly impossible to dissect from the host's body. The journey to Signoia could be a two-day endeavor, or it could be one very long, exhausting ride that could be completed in just under a day. Shalton and his men had to make their trip the latter, and they did so with considerable haste. They were lucky because none of the routes were flooded. He and the rest of the soldiers could move fluidly towards Signoia without a single hitch. Shelton and his men emerged from the tree line to see Signoia with its drawbridge up. There was no noticeable movement from the streets of the town, but they had also arrived late in the afternoon. One of Shalt's scouts returned from the road to the north in a hurry to let them know that the Rieslig army was indeed on its way, and the numbers hadn't been exaggerated. They were half a day out. They had a tough fight ahead of them. Shalt decided it would be best to rally the troops of Signoia and pad their ranks at least a little. The Signoians had been under attack for so long that the citizens and farmers were also the army. Schalt and his soldiers called up to the drawbridge men, but no one answered. Schalt scanned the ramparts, but saw not a single bowman or lookout guard. Not a greeter or gatekeeper of any sort. Something didn't sit right, and something else didn't smell right. Don't like the look of those birds, Henny said, pointing to an above-average number of birds flocking to the city beyond sight. Schalt curled his lips frustratedly, fearing the worst. He paced before the drawbridge. He looked left and right, then marched back through his men to the back of the line. Even in the fading afternoon light, 
the group could see a huge cloud of smoke filling the northern horizon down the main road between the hills. Schalt massaged his chin and continued pacing. They'll be here in the middle of the night, Schalt said. Henny met his side. Look, if everyone in the city is dead, what use is there in staying here? We don't know if everyone's dead or if they've been taken hostage, said Schalt, and our mission is to make certain the orb is secure. He walked to the equipment cart and grabbed hold of their thickest cord of rope. It was part of a wrap they had used multiple times for pulling carts out of ditches. Schalt carried the rope around to the right side of the sludgy, stinking moat that surrounded Signoia's wooden stake ramparts. Being known as a stronger-than-average individual, Schalt dropped the wrap of rope to the cliff ledge preceding the moat. He rolled the thick cord into a regular cinch knot on the end that would hold. Giving himself enough length, he whirled the knotted end over his head and let it fly. The knot launched and landed between the V of the wooden ramparts. When he pulled back, the knot caught between the two sharp logs of wood. He looked over to see Henny standing there, with his arms crossed. Screw you with your first try, eh? He cocked his brow. Schalt shrugged and then handed his men the other end of the rope. Keep it tight. I'll get that bridge up and we'll figure out what an amine is going on. Once the men had the rope secure and tight, Schalt was able to climb across it. Above the moat, he hauled himself hand over hand toward the wooden wall ahead. The stench that met his nostrils from the sewage below was nauseating. He then smelled another smell, one that told him they weren't just hours late, they were days. Reaching the wooden rampart's wall, Schalt clambered between the spikes and slid down the other side into the city. He tumbled to the dusty grass and got to his feet. Drawing his sword, Schalt crept behind a wooden house to the edge of the cobblestone main road. He saw no one. The sky was eerily twilight. No one was visible. Schalt put his sword away and mounted the drawbridge threshold. Cranking the handle, he slowly lowered the bridge to give his men access to the city. The men entered warily, shields and swords at the ready. There's no one around from what I can tell, Schalt said. Everyone spread out and investigate. Report anything you find back to me. Grab whatever you can eat while you can. We'll meet up in the field outside the city walls in thirty minutes. Everyone dispersed and began entering buildings alongside the main street. Henny caught up to Schalt's side. Seems like it would be easier to defend from within the city walls. I'll not be choked from my exits and backed into a graveyard city to be smothered mercilessly by Riesling's men. The first of the bodies were dragged from the homes along the first few streets of town. It was a disgusting and grisly scene. They found no men in the buildings they searched, only civilians who had been brutalized in the worst ways imaginable. The smart thing for armies to do with children is to take them for slaves at the very least. Riesling's troops didn't bother doing that. When Henny helped drag the last of four daughters in front of their house, he fell to one knee in tears and pressed his palm to his face. The rest of the guards were able to search the interior of the keep that sat like a darkened chapel at the foot of the hill where the city had been constructed. The orb was gone, and so was the royal family. As all of this was happening, Schultz suddenly felt a strange feeling. It was spawned by a simple, unimaginable line of thought. As he was looking at the women and children being removed from the houses around them, he asked himself, What if this happened in Tonin? And of course, the next question was nearly the very same. What if this is happening in Tonin? Schalk grabbed Henny's wrist. I think we're being played. What? Henny spat a hawk of goo into the street. 
the Signoyan messenger, the road guards? What if they were all Rieslik soldiers in disguise? What if they took the city days ago, two or three days based on the state of these bodies? And what if they knew Davis and I weren't together? Forcing Davis and I to remain preoccupied away from home leaves Tonin almost completely defenseless, and for possibly days. So what the hell should we do? Henny asked. It's already too late. Kibzy, their lookout, had been listening to their conversation from nearby. They'd see our tail and dog us all the way home. We'd end up fighting them on the roads or having them chase us through the jungle. If that's their plan, then they'd know we'd be outnumbered and retreat into the city, Henny said. From there, they'd just starve us inside the way they did with the Signoyans. Shaw wiped the sweat from his forehead with the heel of his palm. We're gonna have to fight. Three to one. Three to one? asked Henny, wrinkling his forehead. No, swallowed Schalt, thinking of the ancient battles. The history of their people told numerous tales of smaller armies taking on larger ones and winning through sheer cunning, skill, and luck. What if we could control the flow of the opposing army into the city like a spigot? You mean, leave the drawbridge down and invite them right inside? Henny asked. Sort of. Schalt held up a hand to point at the mouth of the bridge feeding to the road and field ahead beyond the sturdy wooden archway that seated the drawbridge. Let's assume we make our bridge a permanent structure. They'll try to destroy it, but we're going to have multiple ways of getting in, out, and across the moat. We turn the city walls into a key member of our army. Now you're talking, Henny grinned. Kibzy, said Schalt. How long until the Riesling army arrives? Four to six hours, depending on their pace. Kibsey replied, but it also looks like we've got rain coming. He nodded to the eastern horizon where lightning flickered from the clouds. Four hours should give us just enough time to get everything ready and set up the wall, Schalt said. Let's get started. 3. Schalt had hoped to communicate with the Riesling army's commander. Part of him thought that when the Riesling soldiers saw the Tonin troops gathered at the mouth of the bridge within the secured city, they would reconsider their move to attack. Even with a large number of troops, assaulting a militarily secured city with limited access would be a major cost to one's forces. However, the Riesling troops did not try to communicate. They emerged from the darkness in block formation. The only reason Schalt and his men could see them was due to the torchmen marching on the corners of each block. Both sides knew the block, but the Rieslings were notoriously unskillful when it came to wall-to-wall combat. The moment the opposing troops could be seen, Schalt and his men moved out about twenty yards beyond the city walls in a shield wall that spanned the length of the lowered drawbridge. The Rieslings did not stop. They kept pace and marched forward. It had finally started to drizzle as the clouds knitted together overhead. At two hundred yards away, the Riesling army hesitated as they were met with the rhythmic shouts of Schalt and his men. They roared at the top of their lungs as they beat their shields with the hilts of their swords. As they had prepared, Schalt had the men slowly stamp and move backward as they backed over the wooden bridge that had been fortified with debris from the homes of the city. The Riesling army thundered ahead despite the intimidating yells from Schalt and his men. Brace! Schalt yelled as the disorganized line of Riesling men sprinted for their front troops that had just stepped off the wood of the drawbridge into the city. Arrows rained upon the shields of the front line and the shields that created a protective overhead like that of a turtle shell. The Riesling men crashed into the wall of shields, shoving their shields and weight into them to almost no effect other than the slow give Schalt's strategy awarded them. When enough of the Riesling troops had encountered their line, Schalt's men blasted their shields out, 
sending the line of Riesling men flailing backward before the Tonans stepped forward and gouged the Riesling's exposed line. The men snapped back behind their shields almost instantly before the arrows could land upon their targets. Back they moved, a slow foot by foot toward the city keep. The Rieslings were none the wiser. They gnawed upon Schalt's skilled front line like a dog chewing on a tree branch. Men were lost, but the line filled in to replace them. An arrow whistled past Schalt's face as he stepped back with the crowd. He had his shield over his head and stood in the third line from the front, ready to replace one of his brothers in the front line when the time came. But it wouldn't be now. It would be upon the steps of the keep that the true battle would begin. The Rieslings fought like they were tired. They had no heart in this because it was in order and they saw no strategic advantage in claiming a dead city inhabited by the opposing troops of another town. But that's what bothered Schultz so much about this. It was like they were being pinned here so they couldn't be back home. It made him pray that Davis would be handling the defense of Tonin until they could get back. The men moved through the city, guiding the Riesling troops into the heart of the town. They inched past the main intersection that created a crossway between the main road. In the alleys down either side of each correlating street, Schultz's men were secured. But from the Riesling's point of view, the streets would be clear, for now. All the way to the steps of Signoia's keep, Schultz's men let the Riesling's steadily take ground. Ahead of Schalt, the corridor of Signoia was filled to capacity with Riesling troops, all the way to the drawbridge into the field beyond. Arrows rained upon their shields like hail during a storm. Schalt drew his sword from its scabbard at his hip. Now! he called. At that point, Schalt's shield wall began pushing back. They shoved the Riesling numbers, stabbing and skewering their ranks until the streets filled with Riesling blood. It was difficult for the Rieslings to regroup properly because Schultz's men had now filled two new shield walls on either side of the Riesling corridor from the alleyways where they'd been hiding. A vicious, gory brawl took place in that intersection. Schultz reached the front line and shoved into the Riesling troops. He was a massive individual. He planted a boot upon the shield of a Riesling soldier and kicked him into six of his own ranks, knocking all six down. He refilled the shield wall, even though he wanted to rush into the oncoming horde and sate his bloodlust and fury. Only fools lost control of their coordinated plans for the battle rage. The rain picked up as Schultz's men tore through their enemies. They pushed the Rieslings all the way back across the drawbridge, but could push beyond no further. There were hundreds of troops surrounding the mouth of the city, playing tug-of-war with ground as the wooden shields creaked, clacked, and ripped back and forth. It was almost impossible to keep from slipping back and forth in the mud from the road. That was the prime reason they couldn't get free. As Schalt pushed in the group, his boots found it difficult to hold traction from all the blood, sweat, and water staining the wood of the drawbridge. He wanted to order a spreading strike, but they were compressed into the city like sardines. The whole of them fell back into Signoia. They held the front line from there, maintaining a foothold while chipping away at the Riesling ranks. Schalt felt the pressure relieve, and his fears were all but confirmed. The Riesling troops kept their wall and block, but chose not to delve deeper into the city. That meant they knew they had the numbers, so all they needed to do was pin them. It was precisely why Schalt didn't want to fight in Signoia, because the Rieslings might be able to keep them pinned here for days. It wouldn't be that way if Davis was able to show up from behind, but everything in Schalt told him that was not possible. Malice was making a power play. He was committed to obtaining the three Remel orbs at whatever cost, and he was on track to succeed through deception and trickery. 
A frustrated sense of hopelessness flooded through Schultz's chest to know that there was almost nothing he could do from here. There was only a single last resort, and that was to flee through the back of the city to regroup in the field as a larger force. That was supposed to be the plan if they dropped a considerable number of Rieslig men, but so far the loss was barely noticeable. They maintained a stalemate for hours, pushing into the field, only to be driven back into the city walls with equal gains to losses. The problem with being pinned was that they had limited resources. There was only so much food the pack horses carried. They'd be starving and looking to one another for sustenance within three days. Daylight would be upon them soon, and it would cost them their advantage. Staying in Signoia wasn't an option. They needed to clear this place just so they could die with some semblance of honor. Schalt made his way through the men to the rear of their ranks and ordered everyone to start exiting through the hole in the back of the keep they had made. He ordered them not to go through and cross the moat until he gave his order, but they should get ready. The Riesling's men would be watching the sides and back of the city so they would need to be ready with a shield wall. Schalt waded through his men to Henny's side. Henny, have the soldiers make a final push. Then once the bridge is clear of Riesling men, raise the drawbridge. Once that happens, get everyone through and set up in the field beyond the keep. On it, he nodded and disappeared into the crowd. 4. Schalt ordered the troops toward the back to start moving through the passage into the field. They might have 45 minutes before the morning light could easily expose their ranks. He watched the men push the line back to the field, then move back so the drawbridge could rise. It ratcheted up without resistance from the Rieslings. They would keep the Tonans trapped and starved for what they would perceive to be a long but easy victory. Double time! Schalt hurried everyone the other direction. The soldiers had been prepped for this inevitability. It was a delay tactic, and there was a good chance the enemy commander would become wise to the play. Signoia wasn't a large city. The very best they could hope to obtain from this was enough time to regroup and meet the enemy in head-on combat. The rain assisted in this effort. Schalt was able to get everyone out and in information through the downpour. The Rieslings lived in the arid hills to the north and received considerably less rain than the Tonans, mostly because of Sikir's power. Schalt and their brothers were familiar with fighting in the rain. It was one of the only advantages they had over the Rieslings' superior numbers. Their effort got all the soldiers out of the city and in line within the field during the height of the fortuitous downpour in twenty minutes. Once every man was out, Schalt hurried to the front of the wall. Raising his shield, Schalt placed the shoulder of his blade upon the rounded rim. These soldiers drank the blood of the innocents! Spare no one! he yelled. Move out! Ho! 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 He hammered his sword upon his shield with each call, trying to hear himself amidst the joined, roaring yells of his cohorts. His heart hammered in his chest as they moved foot by foot through the downpour of rain in the darkness toward the distant flickers of light. The Rieslings could hear them and they were ready, but with the rain they hadn't expected the Tonans to make another move until the morning light met the battlefield. The nights on Alondranon were long. While the clouded sky had become a shade lighter, the rain gave Schalt and his men just enough to work with to bring the heat to the Rieslings. Shouting and hammering through the darkness, the men smashed into the prepared Riesling wall. Schalt thought of his home and felt a fury he hadn't felt before. He thought about the women and children from Signoia who had been slaughtered. Thought of his own people and how the Rieslings had tried to pin them in place and prevent them from leaving. They would do to Tonin what they did to Signoia, and that could not happen. He crashed his shield into one of the opposing Rieslings, throwing the full strength of his left arm and weight into the blow. 
The soldier flew off his feet before Schultz stabbed the man's neighbor in the face, then slammed his shield into the next soldier. He returned to the block, rinse and repeat. By the time the morning twilight had filled the sky, the two groups had devolved into a muddy, bloody brawl that turned the field between them into a chocolate wine mess. The battle moved to the hill where the two armies became evenly matched. Schalt and his men refused to let up. The Riesligs had no arrows left in their quivers. Brute strength matched brute strength, and the Tonans were far superior in close quarters. Everything in Schalt's body began to alert him. Covered in sweat, blood, and mud, when he dropped his heel back to return to the shield wall, his leg quivered. He could barely stand. His left arm ached like he had bashed into a hundred thousand men. His swinging arm had chopped through a forest of trees. The joints between his bones were numb, especially in his fingers. He stepped over twisted, mangled bodies. He recognized the faces of his own men. He battled on with his remaining brothers. His sword shattered on the blade of a Riesling soldier, but Schultz still smothered the man with his shield. He searched for another sword, but couldn't find one. He kicked over different men for weapons that had already been claimed by other fighters. Three Riesligs moved to surround him, but Schalk kicked one of his brother's shields into his open hand. He nodded to the men, grinning like a fool as they rushed him. Schultz slammed into the men, ramming the rim of the shield into one man's throat. The opposite shield's rim sent a Riesling soldier to the ground with a crunched, bloody dent where his nose had been. He found the last forty of his men and maintained their shield wall as they advanced but the Riesling troops were broken. They scattered and ran in all directions. Schalt and his men paused on the hill. They watched the remaining Rieslings run to the forest line where their horses were waiting, and flee. The rain had stopped. A humid fog had settled over the putrid battlefield that was full of dead soldiers. Blood and grime covered Schalt and his men. He searched for Henny, but he could not find him. Stinging, sweaty tears in his eyes, Schalt desperately searched the dead for his brother. Henny's body could not be found amongst the hundreds, and Schalt and his men could not stay. Taking a knee next to his fallen men, Schalt punched his fist into the ground. I'll come back for you, he promised, but even he knew that was not likely. I'm so sorry, brother. Schalt pressed the heel of his palm to his forehead, sucking in a shaky breath. He pushed to a stance, biting his dried and cracked lips. He gave the silent, misty field that was covered with the slaughtered dead a final surveying look before he turned and followed his men and their horses into the forest from whence they had come. 5. The men were in far worse shape than they had initially realized. Almost all of them had sustained some form of injury from the battle. They were exhausted and had little in the way of food and water after all was said and done. It didn't matter. The men moved as quickly as they could toward Tonin. At the end of the first day, their number dropped to 39 as Gefton finally succumbed to the fever brought on by his infection. They had hoped to arrive back in Tonin by the end of the following day, but then they were met with a heavy downpour. A horrible fear that they were already too late began to sink in. At last, Schalt and his men emerged from the jungle brush to find Tonin's external wall destroyed. Floods of Rieslig soldiers were pouring inside. Before Schalt and his men could get their wall in order, they were surrounded by what they could only assume was the true Rieslig army. A thousand men, headed by Malice's son, Deus, covered Schalt and his men with enough arrows from all directions to ensure a sufficiently quick death. 
Shaw was about to give the order to defend, to turtle into a small globe for a last stand, when Deus broke from the ranks on horseback to meet with him. Schultz's men lowered their weapons as Schultz met the front of the line. Have your men surrender, and your men and their families will be spared. This is not a negotiation, Deus ordered. Schultz paused, then glanced over his shoulder at his men. Deus, the son of the conniving Lord Malice, the man who has no qualms about slaughtering a beleaguered civilian populace, only to use their bloodied carcasses as a diversion. This man plans to use your women, enslave your children, and then say they'll give them back to you. What say you to that, men? The men gave a resounding yell before raising their swords and shields. Schalt looked back to Deus. He wore a snide, sneering expression upon his wormy face. Doesn't sound like this is going to go as easily as you'd like. Deus, displaying more patience than his nature normally granted, flickered his eyes open and closed, then swallowed hard. He slowly dismounted his horse and unlaced his sword in its sheath from his belt. Resting the belt on the ground, Deus raised both empty hands, then lowered them for his men. The archers all lowered their weapons. Your brother is dead, Schalt, Deus said. Your city is in ruins. We have your father cornered in the castle, but we need your help to get information to him. The battle is over. I promise sanction for you and your men, on my honor, not my father's. Further bloodshed is needless. We're offering you and your bloodline a path to citizenship under the new Riesling Empire. We will extend the same to your men. But first, you must accept this loss and tell your father to give up the secure orb. The offer was shit. Even if it was true and Malice did allow Schalt and his men to live, they would not live well. They would be forced into servitude for this new empire, never allowed to hold a blade for the army because no one ever trusted a formerly captured man in their official militaries. They would become serfs, farmers at best, but they would be alive and they would be able to take action later. There was no survival in fighting. There were too many injured in their numbers to retaliate properly, despite their attempt to intimidate. It felt like a long time passed, Schultz staring at the gnarled roots alongside the path near Deus's boots. Their deaths would be meaningless, their people killed to the last man, even if it was a lie and they killed Schultz only. The possibility that he might have allowed his men to live another day was the only true and noble path. The only cost was his dignity and station. He thought of Henny and furrowed his brows. Henny would have fought with him to the end, and that's what Henny would have wanted. Stand down. Shaw closed his eyes and lowered his sword and shield. Even the men looked taken aback. They'd been prepared to be slaughtered because their people had never given a single inch to the Rieslegs. But there was not an inch left to give. Not in this life. You heard me. Everyone stand down. You have my word your men will not be harmed, Deus said. Your word means nothing, Schalt replied. Take me to my father. Schalt and his men were disarmed by the soldiers. Their injured were taken to medical camps where they would be helped or murdered. The fate of his men was no longer his to bear as Deus led Schalt back into the now-defeated Tonin city. He was forced to see his slaughtered comrades as they made their way through his hometown that was unrecognizable from all the damage it had sustained. He watched, unable to do anything, as a line of Tonin women were marched toward the soldier camps. Everything had collapsed so quickly. Tonin Keep was literally in shambles as the Tonin army had fought to the last man. 
The last man happened to be Schalt's father. Schalt was taken to the sacred chamber of the Rammel Orb, where his father and a small platoon of men held the room. Now that Schalt was available, the Riesling troops cleared the path for him and sent him inside. Sending Schalt to request his father to surrender was a symbolic gesture. With Davis already dead, their entire family line could end here together. Schalt mounted the steps leading to the ridge of the secure orb. He saw his father and a group of five soldiers with their weapons raised. Below them lay the empty stone earth at the bottom of a long fall. Igmus, his father, looked haggard, holding a longsword in one hand and the glowing blue and green orb in the other. He had two arrows in his arm, but looked like he was ready to keep fighting. But even he knew it was over. There was no coming back from this. I had hoped we could avoid a moment such as this one, said Igmus. Alas, we are done, beaten into the ground and dead. He said this as Schultz slowly made his way across the ridge toward the orb's vacant pedestal behind his father. And yet, end it we must. Davis, all our men, our city. Schultz shook his head. I don't wish to see a Riesley run world. I don't wish to see him unite the orbs, but you and I are all that stand between that reality. Too true, too true. Igmus gave Schalt an admiring smile. But I'm afraid you two are already dead, my son. Goodbye, Schalt. Schalt thought he was going to jump, but instead he slammed the orb into Schalt's chest. Mouth open in shock, Schalt's chest throbbed for only a moment before he was instantly paralyzed. Another arrow struck Igmus in the shoulder as the Riesling men entered the room and fired. His final act was to push Schalt from the ridge as stone began to encase his entire form. He couldn't even move to brace his body for a hard fall. The last sight Schalt knew was that of his father smashing the orb into the stone floor before everything went black. 6. Time is strange in tandem with the human mind. It's less that time moves in a line but that it moves in all directions, which is something a human can't comprehend. It never moves backward, as some believe. If time could move backward, it would have already done so. But for Schalt, in retrospect, the years he spent away from the world, entombed within a magical stone pocket that was shielded from time, that time passed both quickly and slowly. It happened swiftly, the way a full night's sleep begins and ends. It also happened slowly in that once he woke up, he knew he had been disconnected from time and space for what felt like aeons. Schalt's first reaction to being awake was a fit of coughing. He was coughing sand, and couldn't move but a single arm to cover his mouth to prevent himself from sucking in more dusty, stale sand with each intake of air. Relief came at last, and Schalt was able to see that he was at the bottom of a large stone shaft buried almost to his neck with sand. He had to dig his other arm out just to free himself. Still buried from the waist down, he looked around, seeing the familiar walls of the Rimmel Orb's chamber, except they were broken and torqued around him as if the entire building had collapsed. What happened? Schalt choked. His voice came out a dry, raspy croak. Suddenly the idea of water was overwhelming. It was a desperation that was on the verge of madness. He fought to free his legs from the pit where he had been cast. Schalt's boot felt something amidst the sand. When he reached down, he drew from the dusty soil his father's fallen longsword. It was worn and chipped from time. When he had finally gotten loose, he was able to clamber between the collapsed plates of the sacred chamber until he reached one of the higher levels. 
Wind hit his face as he shoved a pile of debris from a threshold to the keep where time had erased all of his city's failures. When he finally pushed out onto the keep balcony, Schalt fell to his knees with his father's sword in hand. Everything was gone. It was mostly sand dunes, but there was the occasional corner of a building peering through the dusty sand. That's all that remained of the city of Tonin, other than the great wall they had built that separated the jungle from the mountains. The mountains were still there. The jungle was not. The sea was beyond the cliffs to the east, and there was nothing but desert as far as the eye could see to the west. The sun overhead was hot. The sky was a gentle blue with a few clouds strewn across its being. He could hear the yammering of desert insects around him, but there was not a soul for miles. Had the entire world ended? Had the entire race of his populace, including his enemies, been obliterated from existence? Schalt had to consider his options carefully. Whatever had been keeping him alive all this time, its magic was no longer functional. He was severely dehydrated and needed food. He couldn't drink ocean water, but he could catch fish. The mountains likely promised a better path to water than the desert or the coast to the south. The sunlight waned as he reached the rocky mountain hills north of the city's wall. Looking up into the arid, barren mountains, Schalt felt a sense of hopelessness to know that finding water was still going to be a difficult task. The distant sounds of the sea echoing off the cliffs taunted him with its promise of sustenance. Soldiers who drank of the sea were inevitably pulled into it. Making his way out of sight of the city, Schalt followed the wall of Tonin while keeping to its shade. The sun was unbearably hot. He couldn't recall the sun's rays ever being so dangerously intense. His father had used the orb to create a paradise, a land that was truly unsustainable, and yet it was the most wonderful world Schalt had ever known. Schalt heaved a big breath as he left the shade of the wall and made for the incline of the hill. There was a river in the valley beyond, though he couldn't know what had happened to it during that lost period of time that somehow caused more damage than any army could ever hope to inflict. That's when he heard the voice call out to him. Hey! A man in tattered fine garb stumbled from the trees. He had a big bushy black beard and unkempt hair that fell down his shoulders over the collar of his expensive coat. Schalt readied his father's sword in case the man was an enemy. Are you real? he demanded as he brandished an empty green wine bottle at Schalt. Are you? Schalt asked. I asked you first, you little twat. The man scowled and tried to drink the empty bottle. He lowered the bottle and looked forlorn to the sky in all directions. I have no idea where I am or how I got here. That's how I feel, Schalt said. Okay, now I'm seriously doubting that you're real. The man rolled his eyes and began walking away. If you're just going to repeat everything I say, then you're probably just my own imagination. Schalt threw a stone at the man, clinking the bottle in his hand. I'm real. Now where can I find some water? The man looked outraged for a second before looking genuinely curious. I've been wandering around this place for three days, and I'm pretty thirsty too, come to think of it. I think there's a river beyond the mountain, said Schalt. Let's find it, and then we can use your bottle to drink all we need. Sounds like a swell plan. You can call me Stuval. Schalt, it's good to meet someone who's not an enemy. Schalt said as the two hiked up the hill into the burning sun. You must remember something, how you arrived here. What brought you to this place? Stuval stumbled as he followed. His boots were made for the city, not the hills. 
Stuval also appeared to have trouble focusing his large brown eyes upon anything in particular. Sweat poured down his unnaturally red face, probably because he was wearing a giant expensive coat. It was like something a wealthy sea merchant would wear. The two mounted the hill, only to see a barren, plantless rut between the large mountain opposite to them under the afternoon sun. It was like the surface of the moon, hopeless to support life. You know, I'll bet there's water on the boat. Stuval sighed and turned around. Where did I leave that? Angry, his throat in agony with every breath he took from how thirsty he was, Schalk grabbed Stuval by the collar. You have a boat? Somewhere, but... He rolled his eyes into the back of his head and thought. He bit his lip and squinted. Amine, Schalt released Stuval. I think it's sitting on the coast where I left it. There's water, but there's not much in the way of food on the ship. That much I'm certain of. You mentioned a river and all I could think about was rabbits and deer and fish. We can get fish anywhere in the ocean, you imbecile, Schalt waved at the distant coast. That's a fair point. So you came here by boat? That must mean you live somewhere. A city, perhaps, Schalt said. Ah, Aegir. That's my home when I'm not at home on the sea. Schalt held up a hand patiently to Stuval. Is your boat here? Stuval looked left for an uncomfortably long period of time as Schalt's brows creased in exasperation. I... He held up a finger and looked through Schalt, past him before recentering his eyes on Schalt's face. Schalt squinted into his pupils to see them dilating rapidly. He was on some kind of drug. There was no other way for that to happen. At times, his eyes would go almost pitch black. So I had a bit of a bad situation. Stuval massaged his brow. Let's go to the coast. The boat is there. I promise. I'll explain on the way. The two made their way back down the hill from whence they came, stepping into the shadow of the Tonin Wall to their relief as the sun's constant intensity was no longer a bother. Barbarians built this wall, you know, said Stuval. They probably looked a little bit like you, but they were animals and fools. They inevitably fell to the mountain people, so everyone believes. If Schalt's throat wasn't already a major burden, he might have argued with Stuval, but he decided to ignore the ravings of a drug-addled lunatic. So I'm an ager, and I get a call to help out a new crew that needs a good strong teacher to show them the ropes. That's me, Stuval thumbed at his chest. So we're two days into our voyage, and I'm a wanted man, in case you didn't already know that from my name. I am the Captain Stuval. Get on with it, Schalt scoffed. So turning me in dead would result in a hefty bounty. Were one able to kill me? Anyway, according to my crew, an assassin was found in the cargo hold, poisoning all of our food. There was no way to know what had been poisoned and what hadn't, but the thief had already claimed one victim, me. I don't think they knew what they were doing because they laced my rum with this insane psychedelic mixture. I only learned it was laced after drinking the entire bottle and passing out. I've been loopy ever since. I'm not normally like this. He glanced at Schalt. Okay? Schalt continued walking, but then realized that Stuval had stopped. When he turned around, he saw the man staring blankly with a slack-jawed expression upon his wasted face. I killed everyone on board. Stuval blinked slowly, a lethargic drawl of the eyelids that conveyed the haze the man was stuck in. Sorry, if I kill you too. He suddenly took a deep breath and continued walking. 7. Stuval's boat had been wrecked into the sandy shoreline. It was an impressive vessel by the standards where Schalt had come from, considerably impressive. 
The ship had been framed in fine bracing, its many masts containing layer upon layer of wind-grabbing sun-baked canvas. The hull was splintered from being run aground. Schultz surveyed the damage. I could fix it with your help, said Stuval, but we still wouldn't have the manpower to get it on the ocean. Schultz swallowed hard, his thirst outweighing his need for courtesy. He mounted the ramp and hurried onto the deck only to stop in his tracks. His memory flashed to the gore-covered field where he and his men had held the gate of Signoia. Their hundreds of bodies looked horribly similar to the dozens laying all over the blood-soaked deck. Schalt lost track of how many had been killed, but he could estimate that the number was well over a hundred. Stuval suddenly appeared at the top of the ramp. Right, this is why I didn't want to come back to the ship. Show me where the water is, Schalt waved. The cargo hold. Stuval motioned for him to follow as they stepped between the corpses of his men. Five minutes later, in the cargo hold that had an equal number of dead sailors strewn about its corridors, Stuval removed the lid of a fresh barrel of water. Schalt drank so much, he hoped he'd drown in the process just so he wouldn't have to figure out what to do with the psychopath standing across from him. He drank until his stomach sloshed with liquid. His thirst being quenched, the first of many issues he'd need to address arose. We have to get off this ship, said Schalt, wiping his mouth. The smell is so bad. Schalt grabbed a box of biscuits from one of the shelves and bit into one. It was half stale, but he didn't care. So if you begin to hallucinate like I did, you probably won't come down for about three days, which is how long it's been since this mess took place. Stuval turned around and grabbed a fresh bottle of rum whose seal hadn't been broken. Good old sealed product. Schalt took a box of bread rolls from the middle of the stack where access would have been difficult. He didn't want to lose his mind like Stuval, but he was also starving. At least he'd be alive to lose his mind, so it was worth rolling the dice. He grabbed an egg from one of the racks of chicken eggs, cracked it in his hand, and smelled it. Schalt recoiled and wiped the foul-smelling goo from his palm. The two left the putrid stench of the cargo hold with only enough to get by for a day or two. They would have to find more food as they traveled. Schalt was able to piece together some clothing to keep himself from being burned in the sun off the fallen sailors. He also took a water skin, a nice belt and hat, and a pair of comfortable boots off several of the men. He raised his father's longsword to a sheath one of the sailors had looped to their belt. It lined up perfectly, so his blade had a new home. He could hardly believe he was alive with a sheathed blade in hand. Stealing from the dead was only something one could do freely if their desperation had pushed them so far that it seemed necessary. Whether Stuval followed or stayed, Schalt needed to find out what had become of Signoia and Rieslig. If all of it looked like Tonin, then he was to embark on a potentially perilous journey. Aren't you worried I might turn on you, ruthlessly execute you as I've done to everyone else aboard this ship? Stuval cocked his brow at Schalt before the two lugged their food and gear down the ramp. No. Schalt said. That's good, I guess. Make your choice now, though, said Schalt. I'm headed southeast for Signoia. You can stay here and see what happens to you, or you can come with me and see what we find. Stuval dropped the water barrel he was lugging to the sand in the shade of the ship. There's no city by that name to my knowledge. There's just desert along the coast all the way to Trenton at the southern cape. You have to pass through some rugged terrain and mountains going that way to get there. And what is to the northwest? Schalt asked. More nothing? Mesas? Stuval pursed his lips and thought. Maybe a few taverns all the way to the main road that leads south to Trenton. Or you can go north to Chester and Row. 
Not much to do in those places except work. How do you not know these things? You'd have to be living under a rock for the last thousand years. I'm one of those barbarians you were talking about, Schultz said sharply. He pointed at the wall in the distance preceding the mountains beyond it. My family built that wall. Stuval scoffed, grabbing the dolly he had wheeled with them for carrying water containers onto the ship. Little birdie over a glass of ale told me that their wall got scanned by the humans, and they said it was about 2,200 years old. Everybody knows that wall. Everybody from Charton. But I sincerely doubt your family pushed those stones together in my lifetime. 2,200 years? Schalk gaped at Stuval. If I tell you anything serious today, it's that I have a boat with drinkable water on it, and that I distinctly recall having an ale with a gentleman who told me directly that the Wall of Tonin is about 2,200 years old based on what those humans from the sky told them. At least the name of our city survived in some form. Humans from the sky? Schalk glared at Stuval. Stuval licked his lips and hauled the water barrel onto the dolly. Boy, I don't know where to begin with that one. Why doesn't anything make sense? Schultz asked. What about Rieslig? Stuval smirked. I do know that. You're talking about Rieslig, the city that fell 400 years ago? Uh, I have no idea, Schultz resigned. It really doesn't matter because there are a ton of empires who've played tug-of-war with these spits of sand, but none thought it was worth fighting over in the last 250 years. Everyone dispersed north, or over to Eyre. What's Eyre? Schultz asked. Massive continent to the east. It's quite a bit bigger than Shartan, Stuval said. So where should we go, since everything I've ever known is lost? Finally on the same page, are we? Stuval chuckled. I think the best place for you would be Aegir. You'll need your tattoo to show you've paid last year's taxes. Fortunately, you look about of age to have just gotten started. It won't be complicated to graft a few years of tax history onto that wrist of yours. Tax history? Yep, it's how you avoid the virago, unless you're into that kind of thing. Stuval rolled his eyes at the clueless expression on Schultz's face. The virago is where you get executed by combat in the arena. And they'll do that to me if I don't pay taxes? They'll do it for whatever reason they need, Stuval said. If we were going to make for Aegir, we would need to depart from Chester. And if we're at the Wall of Tonin, based on my geographic memory, we'd need to follow the Wall West to the Wall of Kronos. Hope we don't get caught by vampires, and pray we don't get caught by road guards on the way to Chester. It's just a matter of securing safe passage to Aegir from the docks after that. How long will all of this take? Schultz asked. By my estimation, possibly a month before we step off the docks onto Aegir's port. I've never seen a vampire before, Schultz said. Pray to Amine it stays that way, Stuval drawled. 8. When Schalt was a child, there was an annual competition to run the wall from the sea to what was now known as, according to Stuval, the Wall of Kronos. It usually took all day at a constant run, and most contestants arrived after dark for the feast at the end. Schalt was too young to compete, and for whatever reason after he reached fighting age, the Riesligs had become more of an open threat than they had been in the past. Even before it all collapsed, the men of Tonin had little time for games. Running the wall now, with a single water barrel to share between them while carrying food, equipment, and clothing. It was an arid slog that made him despise his family for building the wall altogether. But throughout his life, when he would look to the mountains, it had become ingrained inside him to worry. Wild people came from the mountains. 
Their eyes were black like Stuval's, but they spoke no comprehensible language. They attacked or kidnapped women in the night, leaving little of the mangled bodies near town for citizens to find. The attacks were so consistent, upon the building of the wall, a peace known at no other time swept through the city. Night slowly fell upon the land as the two continued walking west. The large, flat-topped mesas that were signature of central Chartan began rising to the horizon in the distance. They had once been covered with greenery and vines. Gone were those days, leaving behind the bare outline of the land formation itself. The life it once contained in mass, long departed for more prosperous ventures. They made a fire and cooked a few fish they had caught on the coast before departing. Coyotes far away howled in packs as they roamed the land for viable prey. Cooked food in Schultz's stomach made him ravenous. He wanted more, but all they had were steel biscuits and some jerky one of the sailors had stashed in his locker on the ship. Schultz was saving the jerky for when they got further into the desert, so he ignored the sensation in his stomach that told him to continue eating at all cost. Stuval withdrew a strange device that Schultz had never seen before. It was a human-made revolver that he had been given after saving an unnamed man's life. He claimed it wasn't a perfect weapon because it was one of the earlier models he'd made on a lathe, but it was a simple ball-and-cap six-shooter. The stranger had given him all the tools and tips to clean and oil the thing as well. Schalt watched Duval pull the device apart and clean it, but when he held the pistol up to look down the sight, his aim was all over the place. He blinked, then put the weapon back in his coat pocket. Still a mess, my brain. Stuval massaged his temples as he stared into the fire. Schultz had nothing to contribute, so he simply stared into the embers. He remembered his family, all the people of his city that had been slaughtered or enslaved. He thought about how he had been taken out of the world while atrocities continued to occur. It made him sick to know that he was asleep throughout the worst time in his entire history. But then he remembered his father... He remembered everything like it had happened only days earlier, though it had been ages. His father had sacrificed himself to give Schultz something unspeakable. He had given him a second chance, and a chance at a time when he might be able to survive. Schultz's thoughts were interrupted as Tuval turned his head toward the darkness nearby, then looked to Schultz. You hear that? he asked. Both stopped moving to listen over the crackle of the fire. Schalt could faintly hear the sound of horses galloping through the sand nearby. The two stood up as four people mounted the hill behind them, three men and a single red-haired young woman. They all wore rugged travel cloaks and carried short, thick blades for chopping through brush. Stuval raised his hands to the sky. Would you look at that? They sent a search party. Stuval? One of the men gigged his horse forward. What are you doing here? Senator! Stuval rotated his head around so as to get a good look at the man, but his eyes couldn't center for him. We're here for Schultz, the man spoke. Who are you? Schultz asked. How was it possible for a strange man from a different time to know his name and precise location? My name is Salatravis, and this is my sister, Saladia, Salatravis said. Saladia nodded with a gloved wave from atop her horse. We've come a long way to find you, and there's much to discuss in little time. Short episode this month. I've been trying to figure out the best way to roll out this overarching plot that's going to span multiple episodes from this season. And this is the first one. 
I can't say too much, but I've been working on some big things for this format, and I hope to keep it rolling through the year. Drop me a line on social and let me know what you think. Have a great summer, everyone. See you next month. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, voiced, and produced by Benjamin Allen. Please throw us a good review or tell a friend about our podcast if you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to give us feedback, please contact us through our website at ekpublishingmedia.com. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information about this podcast and other stories as well. Thanks for listening. So all we have to do is lure the dragon from his keep, and that's when we take him down. Who wants to be the bait that gets the dragon's attention? Anyone? No takers? Okay, Waldo it is then, Richter shrugged. Dude, Waldo spread his arms in protest. I already said I'm not going in that cave for you. Too bad it's an order, Richter said. I don't take orders from you, not since the cheese factory incident. Yeah, probably a good move. Why don't we just sing the dragon to sleep, asked Athori. I've heard dragons find the human song voice to be one of the most infuriating sounds to their reptilian ears, Mulligan stated. Oh, that sounds interesting, said Richter. You are not using our underage bard to lure a dragon from his cave, Ella said. You know there's no I in team, Richter shouted, and it seems like I'm the only one coming up with ideas. There is literally no reason to jack with this dragon, Saladia said. You're just bored. Hard to blame Richter when he just yelled dragon and we all followed him. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media Production 2022.